probably more will have, I don't know, been ascended to heaven. Who knows? Ascended to heaven. <laughs> Could happen. Could happen. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today is uh, Darlind and Andrew Prokop. Uh, we did uh, a couple weeks ago, I thought the three of us, a great podcast looking ahead to the Virginia gubernatorial elections. Uh, Ralph Northam was flailing. Uh, MS-13 attacks were boosting Ed Gillespie, narrowing the polls. Uh, as, as recently as uh, Tuesday's episode, I was on the air, uh, not making any strong predictions about Northam and Gillespie, but saying that in practice, even if Democrats won, not that much would change on a policy level because uh, the Republican majority in the House of Delegates was just insurmountably large. Um, that turns out not to be true. Uh, pending a couple recounts, uh, Democrats might be tied in the House of Delegates, there might be down one or two seats. Uh, they're definitely going to be down one seat in the state Senate. So it'll be hard to pass legislation. I, I don't think Virginia is going to become like a huge engine of, of progressive policymaking. But it's it's close enough that, you know, a little shenanigans, arm twisting and, and things can can get bills through. So uh, basically, Democrats did a lot better than people were expecting. Gains in the House of Delegates were a particularly big deal for Democrats because they started, um, they were way down. They only had 34 seats compared to Republicans, 66 seats in the 100-seat uh, chamber. And they've gone all the way up to at least 49 seats, and they might, pending the outcome of, I think, three races that still look extremely close, uh, they might get enough to have it be a 50-50 tie where they would have to do some sort of power-sharing agreement. And this is a big deal, and, and this did come as a big surprise because all of the analysts and pundits who were looking at this beforehand just thought that that was just way too much ground for Democrats to make up in the state house. Democrats have been traditionally weak down ballot in recent years, and uh, and there was this powerful Republican gerrymander. And, and it's hard to beat incumbents. Yeah, exactly. But what ended up happening is that not only were the closely contested races uh, tipping in Democrats' favor, but a bunch of races that weren't even on anybody's radar uh, also flipped to Democrats and, and longtime incumbents were knocked off. So you had um, uh, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America who uh, was running as a Democrat, and he beat one of the Republican leaders in the chamber. And that was just like a total shocker. You have other uh, races that were more known to be contested, but were still viewed as reaches for Democrats, which they also won. They basically won sort of everywhere based on sort of the strength of the Democratic brand generally. There wasn't one type of candidate that won down ballot. It was it was just sort of every type. So I actually have a question about this. I 
all I have after Tuesday night is questions, uh, and I'm hoping that you guys can sort some of them out for me. But I've heard two different narratives about the House of Delegates races. I've heard, you know, Democrats and progressives say, see, this is why even if you think the race is hopeless, you just have to have someone. Because in a strong enough wave election, no matter who you have, as long as there is a Democrat, someone's going to vote for them and they have a chance. I've also heard the narrative that these House of Delegates races saved Ralph Northam because people were super excited about voting for their House of Delegates candidates and that that, you know, carried Northam to a bigger margin of victory than his otherwise somewhat uninspiring candidacy would have had. And those kind of seem mutually exclusive to me, like either the House of Delegates candidates are warm bodies or they're the ones that are really driving Democratic enthusiasm. And I'm wondering what you guys think as to which of these is true. Well, I definitely don't think they saved Northam. He won by uh, almost nine points, which is pretty convincing win. I, I think it's more, it makes more sense to think that both are coming from the larger trend, which we did observe, which is that Democrats were enthusiastic and willing to turn out. And, um, and I think one interesting thing about these House of Delegate races in particular is that um, you know, I said there was a gerrymander, but it actually turned out that in 2016, Hillary Clinton won 51 of the 100 uh, districts in the House of Delegates. So in a presidential year, it did seem like Democrats had the advantage. And the big question was whether they could replicate this presidential year type turnout in a non-presidential year. And it turns out Basically, they did. Um, they won. Their House of Delegate gains did come overwhelmingly in those Clinton districts. So, um, yeah, I mean, the gerrymander issue, right, is that, you know, you you, gerry, you you have a census in 2010 and then you draw a gerrymander based on what you know about politics in 2010. And Virginia is a state that's been heavily impacted by the sort of structural shift of white college graduates into the Democratic Party. So a lot of seats that were drawn to be safe Republican seats, Hillary Clinton won in 2016, which then raised, it made them contestable. But then what happened in 2017 that was striking was the Democrats didn't win like some of the vulnerable incumbent House Republicans. They won basically all of them, which rarely happens. I mean, typically an incumbent elected official is able to gut out a couple extra percentage points based on, you know, incumbency advantages and, and district fit. And also Democrats all throughout Obama's term in office just like struggled with turnout in off-year elections. And I don't think it's shocking that being out of office, you know, helped ameliorate that a lot. But you never know until it happens, right? Like this was the first big test of the theory that switching the president would sort of alter the enthusiasm gap. And it, and it seems to have. So I think it's really worth highlighting the gerrymander question because I have seen some people kind of say, well, this shows that because, you know, 10 years passed between censuses that concerns about partisan gerrymandering aren't actually that valid because demographics change over the course of a decade. I think there really were three factors that combined to make this not to kind of overcome gerrymandering in Virginia. And only one of them is time. Uh, the second is that the demographics in Virginia were changing in a way that favored people who are less prone to voter suppression and people who are kind of 
more heavily courted, you know, who who are swing voters and therefore who, if they switch parties, are going to really impact that margin, which is, you know, kind of the white, uh, well-educated right. suburbanites. And third, that that voter group also happened to coincide with a voter group that was shifting, you know, en masse, not only swing voters, but really over the last kind of, you know, we've seen between 2016 and 2017, shifting into the Democratic camp in a relatively big way in Virginia, at least, so that it's not necessarily the case that any state, it's not necessarily the case that Texas, for example, where gerrymandering really is counteracting demographic change, is going to end up flipping just because the demographics are there. It's a matter of who is who are the people who are moving in who aren't being accounted for when those census lines get drawn in 2010. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, you just do these things more or less well. I mean, in, in North Carolina, right, Hillary won almost half the vote, and Democrats have like a third of the seats in the state legislature, and the Democratic gubernatorial candidate won. Um, it's, of course, true. There's like some theoretical level of waviness that will block that, but realistically, they, they need a different map. You know, one way in which I, I did think that the down ballot, I, I think mostly this idea that like Democrats' excellent down ballot candidates were going to like save the day. I think that was a kind of um, pious myth-making. By I, I think it is great that there are activists out there who are trying to recruit more people to run for local office. That's like an important thing to do. You wind up overstating things when you're an activist and organizer. But one way in which I do think it made a difference is that Democrats had such a sort of diverse portfolio of down-ballot candidates that when Northam started to look shaky, there was things that people who were political activists could still be excited about, mm. right? If you are a Red Rose Twitter guy who thought the whole top-to-bottom approach of the Northam campaign was misguided, there was still this, like, weirdo, long-shot DSA candidate running against a, a guy from the House of Delegates leadership, and you could be excited about him, right? right? If you wanted to engage in a little out-of-state anti-Trump act of resistance and you didn't want that to be swallowing your doubts about Ralph Northam, you could latch on to that guy. If you were interested in trans issues, there was a trans woman running, right? Ralph Northam didn't need to highlight that issue. She frankly didn't even highlight it much in her campaign, which was really about local issues and stuff. But it's there. It mattered to people. It was something to hang on to. There were a couple of promising Latina candidates who won. So even when Northam is out there, like, flip-flopping around on sanctuary cities, you can be interested in them, if, if that's what's up for you, rather than the whole campaign from an activist viewpoint all being like, you have to love Ralph Northam. I think, you know, realistically, you look at what happened, it's like people showed up at the voting booth to vote for Democrats, and they just voted for Democrats down the line. And like, that's why both the trans woman who wanted to talk about highway widening, and the Democratic Socialist who I don't know what he wants to do. Like they both won, right? Everybody seemed to win pretty much in a way that suggested just a pure function of district level partisanship. But I do think that, you know, in terms of like, activists and good vibes, all the while that, like, Democrats in some high-level way seemed to be in disarray and sniping at each other, it was like everyone had someone who they liked in that sort of bunch. And I, I do think that probably makes a difference at the margin, particularly in terms of, like, fundraising, volunteers, stuff like that. But so I do want to go back and sort of question the narrative uh, that 
prevailed over the last couple of weeks of the campaign, which is that Northam was looking shaky. And I want to ask now if we think that, you know, that was actually true anywhere outside of Twitter. The guy won by nine points. He started winning all these late deciders. Uh, that's what exit polls say anyway. Um, and, you know, now the Northam campaign is putting out their internal polls and, and they, they show him pretty comfortably ahead for the last month or so of the race. And so, I, I mean, did that even happen outside of the minds of of pundits and, and people on Twitter who are sort of just looking to snipe at this guy because they were not excited about him? So well, I want to talk about this internal poll because it is fascinating and it's also like Often campaigns talk about their internal polls during the campaign. They're trying to counteract the narrative at the time. And the Northam campaign appears to have held its fire until they had won by nine points and then said, see, we knew this was happening all along. I can't, I'm going to try to to describe this poll orally uh, for the benefit of our podcast listeners. But what they put out is a poll that shows, and thanks to Andrew for actually, for actually finding this, but they have a poll that shows that immediately after Ed Gillespie started pushing his big MS-13 ad campaign. And if you're not in a Virginia media market, it's really hard to overstate just how ubiquitous this ad campaign was. This wasn't something that only people who are following politics online knew about. You could not watch, you know, playoff baseball or Jeopardy to kind of tip my hand about the only two things I watch on television without all of this coming out. And the Northam campaign found that right after that ad blitz started, Gillespie's favorability drops from plus 10 to negative one and doesn't recover doesn't recover neutral favorability for the rest of the campaign, whereas Ralph Northam's favorability doesn't appear affected at all. Like it, it wobbles a little bit after a week or so, but it it stays positive for that whole time. So basically, it looks like the Northam campaign was sitting on numbers that showed that this thing that looked like it was really a very strong attack that the candidate himself wasn't effectively rebutting in public was actually really helping their candidate. I have I I have a relatively hot take about the difference between Northam himself being able to rebut this and the Northam campaign withstanding it. But I that is an uninformed hot take. And I want to hear from you guys what you think about this phenomenon. I just it seems to me that if the Northam campaign's internal polling had actually been showing what they now claim it was showing, that Northam wouldn't have done the Sanctuary Cities flip flop. That he actually did. I mean, like, like, I don't know, right? I mean, I don't have access to, like, a secret poll. I just know, like, I was watching the campaign. First, they were taking heat for these ads. And they they looked initially like they thought, okay, this isn't going to connect with people. Our strategy for winning is to get the Hillary Clinton voters. Hillary voters are still with us. They're not interested in anti-immigrant demagoguery. If they had been interested in that, they would have voted for Donald Trump. But by definition, they didn't. But actually what he did was halfway through it was change his position on the issue at hand, which certainly seemed at the time like something that you would do because you felt the issue was hurting you. The one thing that I, I think we can know for sure here is that uh, Nate Silver had a good post looking at gubernatorial elections as a sort of function of 
the last presidential result and the president's current approval rating. This was before the election. He said, based on this, you would expect Northam to win by about eight or nine points. In fact, polls show him winning by about two or three points. It seems like Northam will probably win, uh, but it seems like he's underperforming a little bit. Uh, in fact, we know there was a polling error. He wasn't underperforming. He was right on where that sort of fundamentals-based uh, forecast would, would make you think, which is, you know, like, that's fine. But you might have thought, right, if you if you hadn't watched the campaign at all, you'd say, like, okay, here's a state that Hillary Clinton won. Uh, the, Donald Trump has only gotten less popular since that happened. The Democratic candidate is a military veteran, is a medical doctor, is the incumbent lieutenant governor who's already won statewide, born and raised in Virginia, speaks with this, you know, sweet drawl, and his opponent is a lobbyist from New Jersey who <laughs> served in the discredited administration of George W. Bush and, like, barely beat a campaign against, like, a nobody racist in this thing. And so, like, you would want Northam to overperform the fundamentals, right? Like, he was a really solid candidate, right? Like, if you're saying, like, who are Democrats hoping to recruit in gubernatorial elections? Guys who have already won statewide, who are also military veterans and also medical doctors? Like, that is the answer. That is who you want, right? Northam was right on the fundamentals. Gillespie seems like a terrible, I don't want to say a terrible candidate, but a, a, a bad biography for a candidate. I would actually and, and push I, back to, to me, that. this is all a little bit, to, to me, it's all broadly consistent with the idea that on a tactical level, Gillespie sort of outplayed Northam, and also that campaign tactics are just not that important. That, like, elections are not won or lost fundamentally based on campaign tactics that a lot of people, I, for example, thought less of Ralph Northam by the end of the campaign than I did at the beginning of the campaign. That said... I still would have voted for him if I'd lived in Virginia. It's just like not, it's not that big of a deal, you know? And you, you have to, with any kind of campaign thing, it's like you have to wonder how many people are going to be swayed by this versus how many people are swayed by the macro political situation, which is that Republicans are a little demobilized, Democrats are amped up, you know, people people want revenge. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I don't think, Dem I guess if we're looking forward, right? Like, I don't think Democrats should look at this and be like, well, it's fine. We never need to worry about sanctuary city ads again. I think they should look at this and be like, okay, if we get these ads, we need still like better answer than what Northam gave. Right. I think that that's kind of the key, right? When we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, all of us were talking about conversations we were having with Democratic consultants who were looking at what was going on in Virginia and were terrified. Not necessarily because of Virginia, but because they saw this coming, right? Because it's not that Virginia is the biggest bellwether state. It, there are ways in which it is now, but usually the reason why people pay attention to Virginia and New Jersey is they're the only two states that have statewide elections in the year between the presidential campaign and the midterms. And so you look to see what might be happening in the midterms. So I think a lot of the Democratic panic is what happens when this becomes what every single Republican candidate is running on and every single Democratic candidate has to respond to. And so I think that the fact that Ralph Northam didn't have a great response, even though it did not end up hurting him, is not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily speak well of the campaign. It, for one thing, could be that they weren't very confident in their own internal polling because state polls are bad. It could also be that 
a lot of people were looking to Ralph Northam to figure out a way that Democrats could start to win on this issue. And that is still a big fat question mark. Um, yeah, I'd make a couple points. One is that Gillespie was indeed a corporate lobbyist party establishment type figure. But again, in 2014, when he ran for Senate, he came less than a point away from defeating the uh, incumbent senator, Democrat Mark Warner, who seemed to be well liked. So like the guy with a great jaw too. (laughs) he's not, you know, there was reason to expect him to do well. Yes. On paper, he is a lobbyist, but like he had made this, run in which he had shockingly overperformed in the past. So I don't think it's entirely accurate to say that that he was an obviously weak candidate all along. Uh, one thing that I do remember talking about before the election is that I thought that the narrative was focusing a little too much on Democrats in disarray and a little too little on you know, what was happening on the Republican side. Because, yeah, Gillespie had these negative ad campaigns, but there are also, like, reports that he had these half-empty rallies all the time. Like, I don't know. It it just didn't become the leading narrative of the race that Ed Gillespie was having trouble exciting the Republican base, but there was reason to believe that beforehand. And now seeing the results, there's even more reason to believe that really. So I I think this, what really is the most important thing here determining all this is, is that we have moved from eight years of elections in which a Democrat uh, was president to now an unpopular Republican being president. So that, uh, changes things in a variety of ways. It, it seems to make Democrats care more about politics and, and more willing to turn out in off years to express their displeasure with the president. Uh, it also, I think, might make Republican voters a little more complacent, a little, um, you know, because they woke up the day after Tuesday's election and Donald Trump was still president and he's still probably going to be president for another three years. So, it, it, it wasn't like the stakes, you know, were incredibly high for them. And this seems to be a really powerful historical dynamic. It's not entirely clear why that's the case, but this backlash against the president's party is, is just one of the clearest things that pops out when you look at the historical data about, you know, how the parties do in off-year elections uh, under presidents of of uh, each party. Yeah, let's Andrew, take, wait, wait, like... wait, sorry. Let, let's take a break yeah. and then and then and then let's 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 talk about this point about yeah. you know the the sort of broader trends here. Do you need great talent for your business? Are you a little short on time? Uh, you know, of course you are. Everybody needs great talent. Everybody needs to save time. And the great news is you don't have to get stuck in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire anymore. You just need the right tools. You need smart tools. You need ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you post your job to over 100 of the world's leading job boards with just one click. So you rest easy. You know your job's being seen by the right candidates. 
that's great, that's fine. But then what you really get is that ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, it doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. That's why 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate for the site in just one day. The easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish. It's really great. You know, you don't have like get lost, get confused, figure out what's happening. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Okay, so so what do you need to know? This, this sounds great. You want to try it. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes in all industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, our listeners can post jobs in ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, it's free. You just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. So, Andrew, I want to force you to take a victory lap here. I feel like if I had said what you said a couple of weeks ago, or Lord knows if Matt had said what you said a couple of weeks ago, we would have been like coming into this podcast with the Rocky theme. Um, because you absolutely called this trend that I didn't see anybody else really talking about and that really does appear to have been a big deal in Virginia, right, which is the Gillespie enthusiasm gap. And so I, I the reason that I think that, Matt, your point about Gillespie's bio is maybe not – as true in Virginia historically as it would have been a lot of other places is that Virginia really does have a lot of Republicans who moved there from elsewhere, elsewhere who are affluent, who really, really care about cutting taxes. Um, and that's been, you know, because the Republican base tends to be pretty high propensity voters. They're older, they're whiter, they, you know, they turn out all of the time. That who the candidate has been maybe doesn't matter so much in an off-year election. But as we've seen this, you know, substantial shift of the white working class, the kind of Trump voters into the Republican coalition, it kind of looks like the Republicans have some low propensity voters of their own. And even though they turned out to vote for Donald Trump, just like, say, young voters turned out to vote for Barack Obama in 2008, that doesn't magically turn them into high propensity voters. And I feel like you kind of nailed this question of Republican base enthusiasm in a way that looks like it really did shift some of the turnout patterns in Virginia. And I and I think, I mean, one thing to, to Andrew's point is that this is like a big macro phenomenon. I mean, I, I remember I, I did a piece about Democrats down ballot losses um, under Barack Obama, which is like people talked about a lot. And and one thing I found down there was that um, Democrats lost ground down ballot under Obama. Republicans lost ground down ballot under George W. Bush. Democrats lost ground down ballot under Bill Clinton. Democrats also lost ground down ballot in the uh, Kennedy Johnson years. Republicans lost down ballot during the Eisenhower years. Democrats lost down ballot during FDR's term. The the only exception to this rule, and perhaps one reason for his semi-legendary status in, in politics, is Ronald Reagan, who Republicans lost ground in the North down ballot under Reagan, but the sort of meta macro trend toward Republicans doing better in the South continued while he was in office. Uh, but that's like the only exception to this rule. And I, I I don't know much about politics of other countries, but I do know about the politics of Germany. And like the out the chancellor's party always loses down ballot there too, uh, which strongly suggests to me that like the issue is not something about party tactics or organizing, but like some fairly fundamental feature of human psychology is like 
knowing that your guy is in the White House gives you a sense of symbolic affirmation that also leads to complacency. And to me, like a really telling thing in this regard is how Democrats won. I mean, Virginia was sort of the the biggest deal, but they also picked up these two state House of Representatives seats in Georgia in districts that they hadn't contested the last time around and that were close in 2016, but, but Hillary Clinton narrowly lost them. And Democrats won both of those. And I think pretty clearly that's just because the turnout, I mean, the turnout was low. Right. On both sides, not that many Democrats voted and not that many Republicans voted. But what, whoever that hardcore was who wanted to go vote in an off year election in a special election race for a Georgia House of Representatives, which is Jeremy, like there were no stakes at all. It, the Republicans have huge majorities in those races, but it was just more Democrats did it because there are more Democrats out there being like, I want to find a way to stick it to Donald Trump. Then there are Republicans who are out there being like, I want to find a way to to support my man. And I don't know. I, I mean, that's going to be a problem for every down ballot Republican, particularly because Trump is unpopular, right? If Trump starts soaring, maybe everyone will have this huge sense of vindication. But right now it's like you have the people who are into Trump and like they're into Trump and they feel OK. Then you have people who maybe don't like some Democratic policy ideas, but they are also not that into Trump. And it's it's hard to win that way. And, you know, that's what Democrats found when Obama was in office. And I think I think we're suddenly going to find that everything Democrats do tactically starts looking really good because Trump is president. I mean, this is not an immutable law of politics, though, right? Like literally Virginia in 2013 flipped from the opposing party to the president's party. Does that mean Terry McAuliffe is some kind of political genius? Apparently, Terry McAuliffe is the greatest genius in human history. (laughs) Well, a, a couple points there. I think that also Bob governors... McDonald ended up going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, McAuliffe only won by a couple points. Uh, it, 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 that actually turned out he was leading by a lot in the polls, but the final margin was actually, I think, less than three points. It, it turned out to be very close, and it, it was in retrospect maybe he was running against uh, Ken Cuccinelli, who was viewed as an extremist, and and then when the actual votes came in, it was like, oh wow, Cuccinelli actually came kind of close. So I I don't think that necessarily points either way. I I think governor's races, there's more variation in what happens in governor's races than there is in, say, um, the overall amount of House of Representatives losses. Because, you know, there are different factors at stake in different governorships. And and the the state parties can sort of tailor their uh, platforms um, to better fit their state. Like you can really have in this day and age, like um, conservative um, democratic governor in like a state like Louisiana uh, or Charlie Baker in Massachusetts is a Republican or governors have a more sort of independent persona. Yeah. Than or even Chris Christie. Exactly. So, so I think there's uh, and if you look at the historical pattern, you can see the direction it bounces around a little for especially the Senate and the how and uh, the governorships because those races, um, I, I think they personalities and, and personas of particular candidates are more important in those races. And in the House of Representatives or something like the Virginia House of Delegates, it really is more about sort of the party brands and, um, you know, which, voters are motivated to turn out and and you do see this 
historical pattern in the off years that it things tend to swing against the president's party. And it's important to note that most presidents actually go on to get reelected. So it's not as simple as, you know, most presidents end up disappointing people, driving them away, because most of them come back around, like Obama got reelected, Clinton got reelected, um, Nixon got reelected, you know. But I think there it it's really what seems to me to be the case is that it comes down to the president's not being on the ballot and um, his supporters just being less, the stakes just seem lower to the supporters of the president if they know that he's still going to be in office for another few years. Uh, McAuliffe thing, which I had forgotten, kind of raises, makes more serious question that I've kind of had after Tuesday night that I think a lot of people have had, which is what the hell is going on with state polls? Ralph North, the polls were wrong about Ralph Northam by a bigger margin than they were wrong about Donald Trump. And it just happened to be in the direction of the guy they said was going to win one but by more. But I'm really it, it seems like there's really beginning to be this concern that at the state level, pollsters just have lost a sense of how to model who's actually going to turn out. Does Is there any kind of way out of the wilderness here? Or are we just kind of in an era where we're not, we're legit not going to have any idea how an election might come out until the last ballot's counted? I think polling has always been hard. I, f- I feel like, I feel like the conventional wisdom about this, like, oscillates more than the the reality. Like, I, I remember being in, in D.C. working for the 2004 election in which the polls just like they always showed that Bush had a lead over John Kerry, like not a huge lead, but like a lead. And people it's not like every single person was convinced that Kerry was going to win. There was a lot of confirmation bias where Democrats were more likely to think that than Republicans. But like there was a widespread view at that point that polling is like shot full of errors and like it's totally possible that this is completely wrong but it turned out no like the polling was fine then 2008 was like was never close and nobody ever thought john mccain was gonna win and indeed he didn't uh 2012 was like 2004 again where people like raised a lot of objections to the polling but actually it turned out to be fine and then everyone seemed to have learned from that that like it's impossible for there to be polling error at all and developed uh you know myself to included a like excessive sense of confidence in in polling even though you know there was always some differences between the 2016 polls and the 2012 polls it was a similar margin but like at lower levels then we got again with this northam thing it was like the uh, andrew did a post about the like now infamous morning joe panel in which like nobody was willing to take the position that the candidate up at the polls will probably win, which was a little crazy. I mean, I think there were always good reasons to have some doubts about Northam's lead. He was definitely up in the polls, which is a pretty good evidence that he's going to win. And now I, I don't know where we are, but it's like it's hard to model turnout inherently. Yeah, I haven't peered under the hood of these uh Virginia polls. But one thing that I would speculate as a possibility is a little sort of, you know, overcorrection in the modeling uh, because of 2016. Now, national polls were actually spot on in 2016 with the margin. Yeah. And so were Virginia polls. Uh, But uh, but there were those polling misses for Gillespie's previous run for Senate in 2014. And 
as I just mentioned, uh, the McAuliffe uh, race in 2013, he did much worse than his polls showed. So, so you had those examples. And then, you know, the 2016 Virginia polls were right, but then it was like, well, that's a presidential year electorate. And so maybe if I had to speculate, I, I think there was probably a little conservatism in the uh, modeling choices there in that they were were sort of I, I don't know it, it could have also just been late deciders too the exit polls did show that late deciders broke overwhelmingly for Northam and and that that's pretty normal in these wave elections actually like a lot of people who don't necessarily tune in until the very end they still are sort of motivated by, um, you know, the the larger narratives of what's going on. Like this is the Trump era. Like we're going to turn out like Republicans are running this racist campaign or or what have you. So, I, I mean, I, I do think, though, that the return to more humility about whether the polls will be correct is is a good thing. Like I made fun of the morning Joe panel because they really displayed their own sort of groupthink in which they all came to the conclusion that the polls were wrong in the same direction and it was that they were underestimating Ed Gillespie and that he was going to win. But but I do think that questioning or or having some skepticism about what the polls show is good. Like we've seen again and again in, you know, certain states in 2016, like Wisconsin, uh, and now again in this Virginia race that the polls can be uh, off. I mean, I think we see it's right. It's like the polls are not that reliable, but they're much more reliable than like making things up. And I mean, what's striking about Virginia in that regard is that, you know, after, after Trump won, there was a lot of sort of media uh, garment rending that it was like, aha, we've spent too much time in our coastal big cities because it was this sense that the polling error occurred in communities that were geographically and psychosocially distant from the media. And that perhaps if we uh, imbibed the atmosphere in like, rundown diners in like shitty midwestern towns then we would understand what voters are doing and the fact that like pundit guts could be wrong specifically about the temperature of the electorate in the suburbs of washington dc just goes to show that like the alternative to polling does not work there's like literally no group of human beings on the planet that the media is in better touch with than voters in northern virginia you know what i mean like that is the core competency like this is like where i go to my apple store you know like my furniture comes from northern virginia my aunt lives out there we got friends we got co-workers who are living in these suburbs money on the republican side like the bulk of their political professionals live there that's why former rnc chairs are, are running for governor and like you just polling is hard and the polls get wrong, but you're not going to improve on it with strange speculation. It never yeah, fails I, to amaze me just how much political punditry is literally just a reaction to the last thing that happened. What, whatever just happened in the previous election, all the people who are trying to predict or, or do their pundit work are tend to really overrate the importance of whatever that was. And we saw this during 
the 2016 primaries, I think, and and I was making the case that in 2012, there were all these like Republican challengers who seemed like they could have a chance against Romney and uh, briefly surged in the polls, and then they all failed, and then Romney won. So because of that, partisans decided, I, I mean, pundits decided that that the party decides is, is like sort of the way to explain um, how primaries work. Like yeah, so we kept, we kept expecting... Theory. Uh, yeah, and, and so, you know, I, I think uh, one of the uh, underrated ways to be a more savvy consumer and analyst of news is to say maybe we should just take a longer view than just literally reacting to the last thing that happened here which was that you know in this case that some polls may have somewhat missed what some certain rural white voters uh moving more in the trump direction uh than than they expected i mean i think that that is true, but I think the fervor with which the pundit class embraced the idea that they had lost the heart of America also speaks to the fact that there that this was that white working class voters in rural in in you know economically rundown communities are exactly the sort of people who a lot of pundits go through their day thinking are real Americans and feel a certain amount of guilt that they are not caring enough about. And that, you know, the a lot of the performed surprise after the last election was, I think, people who had felt guilty in the back of their heads that they were missing something, thinking that the particular thing they thought they were missing had, in fact, happened. And I I suspect that one of the smarter ways if we wanted to actually get smarter as as a political class and think about how qualitatively looking at what's going on in particular communities could complement the quantitative work that polls are doing, it might be a good idea to think not just about the people who look like you, but who don't make money like you do, and to start thinking about people who don't look like you or or people who come from other experiences that, you know, maybe a little more attention to the communities of color who didn't turn out for Hillary the way they had turned out for Obama and then, you know, turned out, you know, some of whom turned out in these local elections or a little more attention to the people who might not be protagonists of Bruce Springsteen's songs or, you know, the like Norman Rockwell paintings, but who are still people who are far away from the political experience of suburban Washingtonians might not be a terrible way to actually use qualitative punditry to enrich our understanding of what voters are going to do. Yeah, I mean, an interesting thing that that happened here was that when you looked at some of the earlier special elections, right, in which Democrats had sort of overperformed relative to to their previous uh, scores in these House districts, but had still fallen short. One thing that the Democrats found was that like resistance fever was a, was a real thing where Democrats were becoming more engaged, but it was limited to white professionals, right? And African-American turnout especially had sort of stayed at like Obama off-year election kind of kind of levels. And that's a key reason that, that John Ossoff wound up doing a little bit worse than Hillary Clinton did was that, you know, there's a substantial African-American population in that district and they didn't really turn out for him. And one thing that happened in Virginia, it, it seems, based, it's always a little hard to know, but, but it seems like 
the the resistance fever went more widespread and impacted all the democratic base groups so yes college educated white women in in the suburbs but also african americans in in the piedmont and also uh latinos uh scattered mostly th- throughout the suburbs as well and that that is a much more potent sort of political combination than the kind of narrow resistance that that mobilized for for Asaf. and you know that's an you can't know. I mean, to, to Andrew's point, like, I think it's wrong to look at Virginia and just be like, aha, this exact same thing will clearly happen in Michigan in 2018. Um, but, you know, like, it's possible, right? I mean, this kind of thing is a is a difference maker in a, in a real sort of meaningful way. You know, the other thing to say about Gillespie is, I think when we zoom back at this, like, a million miles, we're going to remember that we always sort of knew that anti-immigration themes were potent with some voters, and we never believed that the voters who anti-immigration themes were potent with were people who live in affluent suburbs of very large metropolitan areas, right? And there was a little bit of Gillespie doing the kind of fighting the last war, which was like, this tactic worked for Donald Trump, so I'm going to do it again. But like, it, it didn't work for Donald Trump in Virginia. He just won the election anyway. Yeah, and and I think that brings to mind another sort of big picture question about this stuff, which is that, you know, Northam did a couple points better than Hillary Clinton did. Uh, If you look at the House of Delegate races, the Democrats mainly won districts that Hillary Clinton did. If, If they, you know, replicate Hillary Clinton's performance in an off year, uh, or maybe do a little better than her, like that's not enough to take the house. Um, they they will have to, um, you know, Virginia. In some ways, the House of Delegates map, as surprising as that was, it still was fifty one districts that Hillary Clinton won in twenty sixteen. That's not the case for the U.S. House of Representatives map in any way, shape, or form. Let's take a break, and then yeah, we should consider that. This episode is brought to you by Parachute. Uh, This company makes, they they don't make parachutes. What they make is incredibly comfortable sheets that feel great against your skin. And and not only do they feel good, but you can feel good about owning them. And that's because parachute products are, they're they're all natural. They're made in a family-owned factory in Europe where workers take hour and a half lunch breaks and they live comfortably. Europe, man, it's it's amazing. Uh, Plus, Parachute gives back. Uh, They donate to Habitat for Humanity. Parachute partners with the United Nations Foundations to donate life-saving malaria bed nets to those in needs. They've donated 20,000 of them so far, giving tens of thousands of people safe sleep. Uh, So check it out. Visit ParachuteHome.com slash weeds for free shipping and returns on Parachute's soft, natural seats. Plus, Parachute offers a 69 trial, so, you know, they think you're going to love it. But if you don't love it, just send it back. No questions asked. That's how confident they are. It's ParachuteHome.com slash weeds for free shipping and returns. I think, you know, if you want to look at something that more mirrors what Democrats need to do to win the House, you know, you got to look at something like, the Medicaid ballot initiative in Maine, right? Which Maine is a state that Hillary Clinton won, but it's a state that was shifting toward Trump. Trump won one of the House districts there. And it's a very sort of classic example of, you know, a very white, very working class, uh, but very non-Southern and very secular population in, in Maine. And those are the kind of voters that Democrats used to do 
pretty well with. Not win necessarily, secular white working class Northerners, but do do well, well enough that with some college graduates and, and others, you, you can win the state. And in the Trump era, you know, Democrats were starting to do do much worse with, with those group of people. And of course, uh, Maine's governor, you know, who was successfully reelected, was running on a Trumpist ethnic grievance politics, you know, yes. long before Trump. He was absolutely he was he was Trump without he, he never had Trump's media juice to like go national. But in Maine, he got a lot of attention. And, you know, pe- people like he's controversial, but, but people liked him. Uh, but Medicaid expansion ran about 10 points ahead of Hillary Clinton, um, which is just a good sort of reminder that pretty good campaign issue when you're running in white communities. Um, it, it wasn't another thing that's notable is it's not like it was like toxic in the more affluent coastal areas. Like people like these programs, uh, and still the most conservative parts of the state are still the, the most working class parts of, of the state in Maine. So it's, it's not like, these some of these like like red rose dreams where like if you run on populism it com- will completely inverse the the class logic of America. Uh, it was similar broad regional pattern, but just like more popular than like Hillary Clinton's like woke liberalism was just like we're going to have more healthcare for people, and that's I think not what you need to do to win in Virginia. It is what you need to do to win in Maine. And of course, because politics is hard for Democrats to win in like Michigan, they need to both appeal to African-American voters who are not going to want to hear like total silence on questions of race and racism. But you also mostly need to win white people's votes who need to hear a campaign that is about things that they care about. So my question about Maine, though, is like, Maine is still a super white state, obviously. And it's the whitest state. Right, right. And I feel like there's kind of a consensus in the, you know, comparative political science literature, and y'all should tell me if I'm wrong, that welfare state politics work pretty well in homogenous polities, but homogeneous polities. Um, but you don't, you know, as you kind of get more ethnic diversity, people start seeing free stuff from the government as something that's going to other people and they start supporting it less. That seems like maybe you can't run on Medicaid expansion in a more diverse state and get white working class people to to support it. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something I would say, if not for the fact that LePage had been winning elections in Maine. I mean, I, I frankly am baffled by white Mainers. I, I've been to Maine a lot. And one of the things that's striking there is you only see white people like ever. And um, I don't really know how LePage has managed to gin up this level of antagonism about like seven people living in Lewiston. Uh, but but he has. And, you know, and, and that's why I say like the same basic structure shows off right that like the more rural towns the more working class towns the the poorer towns frankly that would benefit more from medicaid expansion were less likely to vote for it it's just still true that when you were able to put to people a pretty pure question with a you know you can infuse culture war politics into medicaid expansion but still like it's medicaid expansion it's not sanctuary cities it it ran stronger there and that's you know i think I think it's not a coincidence that Donald Trump, part of what Donald Trump did was promise people that their Social Security and Medicare benefits were going to be safe. 
right? He he was trying to say to older white working class voters that there's no tension here. There's no trade-off here. You don't need to pick between Democrats who will protect your programs and Republicans who will protect your values. He's saying, I'm going to do both, right? And the question is, can he really continue to deliver on that? Well, I think, you know, one of the interesting things in Maine with the Medicaid expansion is that this really did not have anything to do with Donald Trump. Like, yes, there was this fight over Obamacare. The Republican Obamacare repeal bill would have ended the Medicaid expansion. But as just an issue in Maine, this was not an issue where Trump came into play. And I think and and then you see those big sort of gains uh, those lopsided margins on the favor of the liberal position here because it is less of a sort of partisan polarizing um, topic as uh, as as if it's Democrat versus Republican or Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Uh, this is just Medicaid expansion and uh, it, it was easier for people to get behind it when it was kind of removed from the partisan. I, I believe there's some bipartisan support for expanding Medicaid in Maine too. It's not just purely a partisan thing. It was kind of uh, the governor was just like going out of his way to stop this thing from happening when the legislature had passed it five times already. But, um, and then I think when we're thinking about what happens in 2018 across the country, we do have to keep in mind that uh, in Virginia, you know, as good as it was for Democrats, this was a state that Hillary Clinton won by five points. And, you know, they are going to have to, it does seem that Trump's approval has dropped and, and that he's viewed less positively in in many states, including some red states, some states that he won, but um, but it's not necessarily clear that uh, you know anti-Trump, supercharged Democratic turnout as of the sort that we did just see in Virginia will also come about in Michigan, in Wisconsin, and especially in those. Um, you know, the the Democrat-controlled Senate seats that are in the very, very red areas. Right. I mean, Trump can lose 15 points in North Dakota, and he's still way ahead. Yeah. But, you know, something that this all reminds me of is that, you know, after Trump won, when people had thought he was going to lose, I think there was a bit of rewriting history of what it was pundits had been mistaken about. And some people started saying like, aha, nobody saw this enthusiasm for Trump among the rural white working class in the Midwest coming. But the reality is best I can tell going over my notes is that we did see that coming and that what people thought was going to happen is that it was going to be offset by a turn against Trump in the suburbs. And of course, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, they don't have cities, metro areas that are as big as Washington, D.C., uh, but Detroit, Milwaukee, those aren't nothing, right? Like a lot of people live in those cities and then a lot of people live in the suburbs of those cities. Uh, like all states, the majority of the land area is rural, but the majority of the people live in the suburbs. And one of the things we saw is that there was this big shift to Hillary in 
some suburbs, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., also in the suburbs of Dallas, uh, in the suburbs of New York, in the suburbs of Los Angeles. But it didn't really happen in that strong way in the suburbs of some of these smaller cities and more Midwestern cities. And an interesting question, if Trump had overperformed expectations as president, right, I think we would say clearly that switch is not going to happen in the Midwestern suburbs, right? People had a lot of doubts about Trump as, as president. They're very visible in the exit polls, even in states that he won. But Trump has set those doubts aside. His approval rating is now four points higher than it was. We'd say, okay, you know, people, some, people, some people who didn't love Trump took a risk on him, and now they're pleased. But what we see is the opposite, right? His approval ratings are lower than they previously were. Um, and he has not altered the behavior that people had doubts about. So I think in some ways a potentially decisive question for 2018 is going to be like, does that drop in the polls represent a turning of the Midwestern suburbs in the same kind of way that we already saw in the more coastal ones, right? Where people are saying, this guy it seems like he doesn't know what he's doing or is the feeling more like, no, it's fine. I mean, I know one, one person who I have almost no anecdotes about Americans, real Americans, but one real American who I spoke to told me that he had voted for Trump somewhat reluctantly because he seemed like an unstable maniac. But now here it was six months later and this economic disaster and the trade wars and all this stuff that Democrats said was going to happen. None of it happened. Everything was fine in America. It's true that Trump does bad tweets, but like, fundamentally, like, there's no reason you shouldn't back him. I, I kind of thought that guy was making sense. Like, that that was a reasonable position to me, much more reasonable than the positions often outlined in these Trump country stories. Uh, but by the broad approval rating numbers, it seems like not that many people have that feeling. Well, what I do want to bring up also is uh, there was another candidate in the 2016 election uh, named Hillary Clinton, who... Uh, is no longer on the ballot despite Fox News and and the president's best attempts. She's the one who did Benghazi, right? Yeah, to, With to bring her up at every possible moment. But if we are thinking about uh, what pundits got wrong before the election, I do think that you know part of what they got wrong was related to Trump and Trump's appeal. But I think another thing that pundits really kind of missed. Um, maybe not all pundits, but but the extent to which the Clinton um, the Clinton is corrupt narrative uh, was a big problem. I, I, I mean, I, I guess this this was something that actually mainstream pundits did focus a lot on and, and helped advance that narrative. But but Democratic leaning uh, pundits who who wanted to kind of you know argue that this scandal was a no big deal, that it was nothing, that voters didn't I think care. a lot of liberals overlearned the lesson of the 1998 election. Yeah. Which was normal people don't care about conservative hysteria about Clinton scandals. Well, yeah, but it turns out... kind of journalistic bias towards smoking guns led a lot of people to note the absence of a smoking gun and understate the kind of power of repeated association of Clinton and corruption and emails and there being something there. Yeah. And it, and it turned out that, you know, I, I think if you said these things in uh, the abstract with the names of the candidates involved taken away, like, 
a candidate for president being under a major FBI investigation is not a good thing. It was not a good thing when it was Hillary Clinton and she was trying to, you know, appeal to working class voters. uh, And and it's not a good thing when it's Donald Trump and uh, now himself under investigation for this uh, Robert Mueller probe. And I think that, um, you know, the power of not having a candidate who has just been so closely tied in voters' minds to these scandals, not not just even for the emails in, in 2016, but, but for decades of sort of Clinton-related baggage. And, you know, her defenders will say there's nothing to most of those scandals, but but it was a real thing in voters' minds, and the the FBI investigation was a real thing, and I think that Democrats really underestimated how much that would hurt them. Conversely, Hillary Clinton is no longer uh, a Democratic candidate for office, and uh, the same sort of playbook may not work anymore. I, I, I think that ba- basically one, one thing... Everyone wants to reach for the 2016 election explanations that are about Donald Trump because he is like the weirdest part of this and and seems to need the most explanation. But I do think that explanations focusing on Clinton's own baggage, um, you know, why might voters in – in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, white voters um, mainly swing towards Trump rather than Clinton. Part of that is about race. Uh, you know, the economic anxiety thing has been tossed around, made fun of sometimes. But but part of it is also, I think, about scandal and that she was, you know, Trump effectively branded her crooked Hillary and there was the FBI investigation. And I, I think that ended up hurting her. But now Democrats are liberated from that and uh, no longer, uh, will be, <laughs> you know, Ralph Northam did not hugely differ from Hillary Clinton's policy platform where he differed is that he was not embroiled in any scandal. Well, speaking of scandal, do we want to talk a little bit about New Jersey and particularly the fact that the, as we sit here, the jury and is currently deliberating whether a senator from New Jersey should be uh, convicted of on corruption charges. Yeah, I mean, we, we should mention this. Democrats also won governor's race in New Jersey. That was widely expected. Uh, I think Kim, Kim Guantanamo, I think, actually put on a fairly impressive performance, getting 42% of the vote. Uh, that matches Donald Trump's performance uh, in the state, even though Trump's numbers have gone down since the election, even though uh, Chris Christie is, his approval rating is like four or something. Chris Christie, who uh, characteristically spent election day picking a fight with a voter in line at the polling place. But yeah, but what's 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 going on? So there's sort of there's basically a Senate seat at stake in this. Well, what's happening is that Menendez was indicted back when Obama was president, and this trial has been years in the making, and he's he's been charged with corruption related to his. Uh, relationship with a Florida eye doctor named Dr. Salomon Melgan. And they took trips together. Melgan, you know, helped pay for his hotel rooms. And and then Menendez supposedly tried to use his office to 
do some governmental favors for Milgan. It doesn't seem necessarily that he succeeded. He he did a few things. He tried to get visas for um, Milgan's uh, girlfriends, uh, three different girlfriends, in fact. Uh, he... Uh, but but more concerning, I think, than that from a sort of legal perspective is um, that Melgan's medical practice was having this uh, big billing dispute uh, with Medicare at which big money was at stake. So Menendez was sort of contacting certain officials in the executive branch and making the case that Medicare was wrong in, in the position they were taking uh, with regards to Melkin's business and, and ba- basically arguing that, hey, you know, let him off the hook. And, and one of the big questions at stake in this trial is whether that really uh, meets the definition of corruption. Wait, I mean, so the, the Supreme Court has narrowed the scope of what constitutes corruption, legally speaking. So that things, I I think there was a time when we would be comfortable saying if a guy is giving you lots of valuable gifts and then you're out going to bat for him and helping his corrupt medical practice win some regulatory fights, they're like, that's corruption. Uh, But in the exciting new post-Bob McDonald era, potentially it's not corruption if you can make the case that, look, writing letters and making phone calls to executive branch officials is not an official act of office of a United States senator. Yeah, and there was this um, this little jokey thing that went viral on Twitter this week. Uh, the jury is currently meeting to, to try to, you know, come up with a conclusion on these charges. And they sent back a question to the judge, which went along the lines of, you know, what is a senator? And then, like, everyone was like, oh, LOL, you know, this dumb jury. But it does sort of get to the heart of the legal question here, which is that they seem to have been trying to ask uh, what the official duties of a senator were. Because one of the arguments that Menendez's uh, team made in his defense was that, well, he didn't he didn't actually take any votes that can be pegged to Dr. Salomon Melgan in any way, like the, no one's alleging that. And and that is kind of the main thing a senator does is to take votes. What he did was instead, you know, outreach behind the scenes. He at one point threatened to hold a hearing uh, and uh, on this Medicare issue, but he didn't end up actually holding the hearing. And, you know, is that an official act? And then I think there's also this issue where Menendez's lawyers have been arguing that, um, you know, as a U.S. senator, he doesn't just represent New Jersey. He represents the whole country. So in a way, this Florida eye doctor is his constituent. So when he is trying to you know, get do some favors for him, intervene on his behalf uh, for the government, he's really just, you know, he represents all of America and, and, and he's trying to help out his constituent. Seems like a bit of a stretch to me, but uh, that's what the jury's trying to figure out now. Reasonable doubt. Amazing. It's an amazing thing. Oh, but we should talk about what happens after, right. um, you know. Should he be convicted? Yeah, so if he is convicted, um, Republicans have been gearing up for a big pressure campaign on Democrats to vote to expel him. 
His conviction would not remove him from the Senate and he would almost surely appeal it. So he wouldn't be like, uh, you know, sent to prison immediately. Uh, but, but in the past, when senators had been convicted, they've some of them have chosen to resign on charges like this. Some of them have, you know, stuck it out a little bit, but but maybe eventually caved and chose to resign. Or uh, there could be an expulsion vote. But the problem is to actually expel a senator, you need a two thirds vote from the Senate, and Republicans only have. 50, uh, 52 Senate seats right now. So they would need to win over 15 Democrats. So it doesn't seem like this will happen because Phil Murphy, the Democrat, just won the New Jersey governor's race to succeed Chris Christie. And um, he won't actually be sworn in until January. So basically, if there is a vacancy, either through expulsion or through Menendez just choosing to resign, before mid-January, then Chris Christie would fill the seat and he would fill it with a Republican uh, who would, you know, potentially be the elusive final vote to pass Obamacare repeal. It would be it would be huge. And, and Democrats really have it seems like they they just can't let this happen. And, and what they'll instead try to do is stonewall on this until uh, Murphy is sworn in and Murphy's a Democrat. So he would just, if Menendez is expelled or chooses to resign, Murphy would just replace him with another Democrat and it would be no big deal, but it will just be kind of embarrassing for the party to like, you know, defend if he is convicted, keeping this, uh, corrupt guy in office. For- I, I not that is- I require, log- not that I'm going to assume logical consistency from politicians, but can someone explain to me, is there any argument that, lame duck Chris Christie, who, you know, literally there has been an election, we know who his successor is going to be, should be allowed to appoint a U.S. senator, but Barack Obama should not have been allowed to appoint a Supreme Court justice in, you know, March of 2016? Uh, yeah. I think if you're looking for logical consistency here, you won't necessarily find it. What this is really about is um, getting a lot of Democratic senators in tough races next year on the record either voting against expelling a convicted felon from the senate or just trying to sort of or, or voting um uh or, or just like causing trouble for the democrats although by... i i just i feel like this is a little bit overhyped right that if menendez is convicted and he agrees to resign he he can write a letter right in which he says like i am resigning effective january 20th yeah, a lot of people think that is what will happen. Right. I mean, maybe he will, maybe Menendez will create a problem for Democrats, but if he plays along and issues such a letter, then I don't think it's like that tough of a vote for, you know, somebody else to be like, yeah, like let's not expel him. He's resigning effective January. Right. To say like he has resigned. Yeah. Right. Like he has resigned and that is why I'm not expelling him. And to then just be like, look, this is just Republicans trying to steal a Senate seat. I think it would be really tough. Right. If if New Jersey hadn't just had this election. Right. If if say if if New Jersey was had its election at the regular midterms and you were talking about running, if you were talking about running the clock out a whole year, then like Democrats would have a real problem. But since we're talking about uh, two months most of which is consumed by Christmas and Thanksgiving, 
and in which the election has already taken place. It just seems like, you know, this is cute of Republicans. I mean, you know, no one should be begrudged their opportunity to try to make people take an embarrassing vote or something. But it's like, it's like really pretty clear cut as far as these things go. The difficulty is like if Menendez chooses to be a jerk and is like saying he won't vacate the seat at all. Because he's appealing. Yeah. I, I do agree that it's overhyped, um, especially because you need two thirds to expel. So Democrats can actually afford to let, you know, 10 red state, um, you know, their 10 most 13. vulnerable. Yeah. Up to. Yeah, a little higher. Depending than that, on think. whether I mean, and if, you know, Rand Paul's got to get out of the hospital. I mean, there's like a lot of. Yeah. But but I'm saying it might Joe Manchin and uh, Heidi Heitkamp might um, it might not be the worst thing in the world for them to cast a vote to expel a corrupted New Jersey. Yeah. Democrat Chuck Schumer, and Senate. Chuck Schumer can pretend to be really mad at them. Yeah. They can have like a huge screaming match. Like, it'll be great. But, but again, as long like, as most of the Democratic caucus who are generally in safe seats or not up for re-election for a long time stay in line then it's not really going to be in serious danger of having this expulsion uh happen uh and also you know this is november 2017 the midterm elections are a full year away many 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 things are going to happen in the news between now and then it's hard for me to believe that a vote on whether to expel bob menendez from the senate will be among the top issues on voters minds after another year of donald trump but um under prediction to hold you to all right with that i think we're going to be expelled from the studio soon uh so thanks darren and andrew for listening uh thanks to uh riyad shawi our engineer pedro alvira editor bert pingerton the producer on this episode uh if you are interested in these or other exciting public policy topics i encourage you to check out the weeds facebook group we've got a lot of great discussions happening there um thanks for listening we'll be back next week